That stormy music you just heard was a movement titled Times of the Storm. It's from a piece by Stephen Banks titled Come As You Are, and it's something of a title track for the new album on Sadie Records, As We Are, featuring saxophonist Julian Velasco, who you just heard there with pianist Winston Choi, there on tenor sax specifically. As We Are actually features Julian on three different saxophones, tenor, alto, and soprano, and it is a competition prize. Julian is the winner of Sadie Records' inaugural Emerging Artist Competition, which was completed the live rounds in November of 2021, and the prize was to make a debut recording, and that is the subject of this classical Chicago podcast. As those of you who have listened before know, every time we come out with a new release, On Sadie Records, we come out with a new Classical Chicago podcast, and As We Are is the new release for Sadie for August 2022, and I'm delighted that my guest on this podcast is saxophonist Julian Velasco. Hi, Julian. Hi, Jim. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you. In addition to winning the Sadie Emerging Artist Competition, I should note that you are listed as a fierce advocate for contemporary arts, and we'll talk about that and one who aspires to reflect and celebrate the plurality of our society. As a fierce advocate, you've premiered over 50 new works and worked with notables such as Ron Carter, Billy Childs, Christian McBride, the Prism Quartet, Zhu Shan, Bang on the Can, All Stars. Also, the Sadie competition was not your only competition win, I know. You have won top prizes from Luminarts, Music Teachers National Association, Van Doren Emerging Artists, Yamaha Young Performing Artists, and the North American Saxophone Alliance. You hold degrees from Northwestern University and Michigan State and are currently completing your doctorate once again at Northwestern. Is that right? Yes, that is. Yeah, it's quite a list when it's written out like that. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. I should note, beginning of the coming season, 22-23, you will be performing with the Chicago Sinfonietto. Which concerto is that? It's Roberto Sierra's concerto for saxophones. Uh, It was originally for James Carter. It's a tenor saxophone and soprano saxophone double concerto. Wow. I know those dates very well because that will be on September 17 and 19 coming up. Uh, I know this because the day in between, September 18, is the annual gala for Sadie Records, Soiree Sadie. And as part of your competition win, you'll be performing there too. Yeah, it's going to be a wonderful weekend. I'm looking forward to it. Are there any other highlights from your bio I should have mentioned? I think you covered so much of it. When I wrote that bio, I tried to think about opening line, advocating for the contemporary arts and also celebrating the plurality of our society. And that harkens back to my own musical origins and my personal origins coming from a wide background from Los Angeles, the son of a multitude of different musicians. I am an amalgamation of my influences, as we all are. Well, why don't you talk a little bit about that early musical development and your education and including, of course, how you chose the saxophone? Good question. Actually, I was a piano player at first. I started very young. Both my parents are professional musicians out in Los Angeles. My father is a saxophonist and was playing in the Disneyland band, was his full-time job. He marched bass saxophone, and I think he lost a couple inches of his height as a result. (laughs) My mother is an orchestral cellist. She studied at USC 
and plays in symphony orchestras and string quartets all around. And I think a large part of my upbringing is a result of those two different worlds. My dad, in addition to being in the band, is also a jazz musician, has his own group. I remember going to see my mother playing in orchestra concerts and seeing my dad play nightclubs. And when I ended up switching from piano, because I hated it, it was always a fight to get me into the practice room with my parents. And if you ever talk to my mom about it, she'll make a point to let everyone know how much I was kicking and screaming through that whole process. But my sister, who's a couple years older, she ended up choosing the violin when she had to start middle school for the music program. And so I had to balance out the family naturally when I started middle school. They wouldn't take piano and band for some reason. And I chose the saxophone because of the free lessons and because I really loved the sound of it. And that's been my primary voice ever since. I met this wonderful teacher, James Barrera, who is the saxophone professor at the University of Cal State at Long Beach, who taught at my high school, Orange County School of the Arts. But he was a seminal figure in terms of exposing me to the classical saxophone community at large. And when people say classical saxophone, uh, it already raises eyebrows. What is that? I've never heard of that. That's a very common conversation I have. And it's wonderful in its own right because it is so new to the field of music, saxophone being such an early instrument compared to today. It was only invented in 1820. It was maybe a way to separate myself from both of my parents while also still like taking influence. I played the saxophone, but I wasn't playing jazz, but I was playing classical music. And so it was just interesting combination. My teacher, James, hit me to this whole world. He studied with this wonderful saxophonist by the name of Otis Murphy, who is recorded here on the Pacifica Quartet release just last year, I think that was. That's our Contemporary Voices, which just happens to have been a Grammy Award winner in 2021, program of contemporary composers, including the Ellen Tefswillick Quintet for Saxophone and String Quartet. He's a wonderful person. I consider him a friend at this point. Uh, we performed a concerto with the Prism Quartet just this past January. He was a major influence into guiding my path into where I'm at. And I ended up going to study classical saxophone for my undergraduate studies. And here I am just about to finish my doctoral degree in saxophone. So it's been a long journey. And here we are. You came to Sadie's attention through our emerging artist competition, and I noted that was not by any stretch your first competition, when in fact afterwards I found a video of you where one of the competitions you won, they asked you to come back and record a video teaching other people how to compete in their competition. What was that like? <laughs> That's so funny. I love that people bring up that video because everyone when the shutdown happened and everyone was making goofy videos and baking and making bread, <laughs> that was one of the things I did because I truly had all the time in the world. It was the Van Doren Emerging Artist Competition, which is designed for early career saxophonists. I believe it's 18 through 22. So early graduate studies, late undergraduate that I happened to get the chance to win. They actually didn't ask me to do it. They asked me to just talk about preparing for the competition. And me being bored out of my mind thought, well, let's do something cute with it. So I was watching the Great British Baking Show a lot. And what would be so funny is if I just made a, a how to prepare for this competition, but I did it in the style of the baking show. And I was making a bunch of home TV show ripoff with my roommate at the time. And it just naturally happened. It's just one of those silly things, but I had so much fun doing it. It's fun to look back on the early pandemic and go, oh, there's something really nice came out of that. And I should note that our Emerging Artist Competition was, of course, for younger artists, and you were 24 when you won that competition. Yeah. Obviously, I saw the competition from one perspective, being the one who 
with my wonderful staff at CD Records put it together and being one of the seven judges as well as one of the three screening judges who picked who made it to the semifinals. I'd love to hear from your perspective as a contestant what the competition was like and how it was like other competitions or how it differed from other competitions. Honestly, this was one of the most unique competitions I've ever been a part of. From a contestant perspective, it was really interesting to be the only person that did what I do. Like I was the only saxophonist. I think I was the only wind player, actually. But it was such a wonderful experience to get to meet all the people that showed up. Because everyone that shows up for that semifinal round, the live rounds, everyone's incredible. Everyone has something wonderful to bring to the table and to share. And they're all top-notch artists. I remember looking through that semifinalist list. Oh, I'm dead in the water. These people are all incredible. That's one of the reasons why it really stood out. It's a weird place in music to have a competition period because music is subjective. Everyone has their own opinion. Everyone has their own insights. And to start putting rankings, it can sometimes be problematic. But I think what was really well done about this one was that no one was really that similar. And at a certain point, it came down to what you were trying to say in that moment. At least I think. You could tell me that I was just completely off base. But it was really cool to share the stage and to listen to all these different artists. And it came down to not what would quote unquote win a competition in maybe a more conventional sense in the experiences I've had in the past where often your programming is what will wow the judges, what will really capture them. Those mind games that people start playing with music competitions or competitions in general, it forced me to think critically about what music is really important to me and what music tells a compelling story asking those questions early career artists or just artists in general need to constantly start asking themselves once you remove yourself from institutions that tell you what to program your hands are completely free and they just say go play a program that in and of itself is daunting but also empowering too you basically asked us to present something that's important it forced me to really reflect on that and i'd say that just from that prompt alone and then to know that I was going in there with nothing other than just representing myself that really forces people to clarify their own musical intent and their musical vision or at least it did for me and in that way i think that's what made it unique oh, i'm so glad to hear that you are correct that it was open to all instruments in fact it was uh, open to voice as well in small chamber groups and we were supposed to have the live rounds in may of 2020 but you know what happened there and by the time we did get to have the live rounds, we had some drops, including we had lost some of the vocal soloists and an ensemble who had made it to the semifinals. But we still had a nice collection of six semifinalists, and the final round was, in addition to you, a violinist and a pianist, so it was certainly well-rounded. And we had a live audience for the finals, who I think really appreciated the experience, especially because this was still early days for people getting out of the house, as it were. So all around a successful prospect. In addition to, there was an age limit, and the other thing is that you could not have already been a featured artist on a recording that's commercially released because that was the prize, of course, to do your featured artist debut. And you're a good example of that because you have recorded as part of an ensemble. I should have noted in your bio that you are the soprano saxophone player of noise, and that's spelled with the little squiggle thing that's called the tilde, N-O-I-S, and you've told me that that squiggle substitutes for I-L-L as in Illinois. Uh, it's one of the many explanations we give when people ask about it, for sure. But that also explains why N-O-I-S is pronounced noise. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> yeah. So that's a saxophone quartet. I believe you've recorded 
Yes, with Noise, they were founded in 2016, and they're an experimental contemporary music group. I think we take a lot of nods to groups such as like Spectral Quartet or Third Coast Percussion, all these Chicago new music scene. That's where a lot of the inspiration came from. And when it was formed, it was that intent. We wanted to do something different. We wanted to link into the Chicago music scene, specifically with like experimental classical music. Yeah, when it was formed in 2016, there was a different soprano member who his name is Brandon Quarles, who ended up taking a teaching position at the University of Georgia. And so I am the newest member of the group. On the first record is This Noise, which came out, I believe, mid-2020. But I wasn't on that record. Uh, We're actually getting ready to release our second record, which is Kinds of Noise, the collaboration between Kinds of Kings Composer Collective and Noise, where it's this over five-year project of writing multiple pieces by the three core composers of the collective and tracking the lineage of growth, both from the composer's perspective, but also from the ensemble perspective. So while I'm not on their first record, I will be on their sophomore, and that will be my first major release with the group outside of a couple singles here and there. But this uh, definitely is your featured solo debut album. Absolutely. Collaborating with Winston Choi at the piano, and we'll talk about the electronic pieces later. But in any case, let's talk about the title and the concept now. We opened with a little excerpt from Stephen Banks' Come As You Are, which is both the first piece on the album, and I think it's fair to say the inspiration for the title. What did you want to convey with As We Are? Mm, Great question. I mentioned this a little bit in the personal note on the inside of the album, Liner Notes, if anyone is a big fan of Liner Notes. I go into this a little bit deeper, but at the core of it, Stephen Banks, who is a wonderful saxophonist, wonderful composer, a Northwestern alum, a couple years my senior, in the peak of the pandemic, released a performance of this new piece that he wrote entitled Come As You Are. And in the program notes for this work, it talks a lot about this idea of multiple identities and the power and acceptance it comes from not thinking that you don't fit in, but rather that because you have all these different perspectives and all these different backgrounds, it is a source of power and strength to be celebrated as unique. So it was a powerful realization for me to hear someone else talk about it as a Canadian American, as a Mexican American. My mom is from Canada. My dad's family is from Jalisco, Mexico. And growing up in Los Angeles, there's just so many different titles and names you can put on yourself and just never felt quite right. That piece and that moment and his writing on this work, Come As You Are, specifically sparked and clicked so much for me. When we started talking about this record as a concept and we finally got down to finalizing the repertoire, I kept coming back to this idea of what are the pieces that I have found myself around? What are the projects that currently are inspiring me, but also what do I feel like really represents me? And it was just all the composers on this record and all of the pieces and the performers all have this very close relationship with me. I was toying with this idea of as I am, and for some reason it doesn't feel, while it is a debut record, and I'm so excited to say that this is my record and so much of this is my musical product. It's not just Julian improvises for like 70 minutes. There's so many other components that come together to make this happen. And I love the idea of sharing and no one owns anything and that it's always a combination of external factors and external people. 
And I consider myself to be on a personal stand. You know, I am not who I am without my family, without the composers, without the performers, without you, without Sadie. All these different things came to make that moment happen. So it's not as I am. It's supposed to celebrate everyone. It's supposed to celebrate all of the people and all the components that make that puzzle work. So all to say, as we are. Yeah. In the personal note, which as you point out, is part of the overall program notes of the album. You put it there, my identity is a mixture of American, Canadian, and Mexican cultures, classical jazz, and popular musical backgrounds. And I wonder if that itself is inspired in part from where you grew up. My wife, the soprano composer Patrice Michaels, is also from Southern California, and she's commented, and of course we're of a different generation than you, but I wonder if this was still true when you were growing up, that the plethora of different radio stations covering these different genres in the Los Angeles area was really remarkable for her and is one of the reasons she's got such eclectic musical tastes. So is that true for you as well? That's interesting that you bring that up. One of my dad's closest friends and a big mentor for me growing up was actually a disc jockey at a local radio station out in Long Beach, uh, 88.1, which was a, a jazz and smooth jazz station. Definitely a big part of Southern California is driving, obviously. <laughs> and uh, we had a lot of time in the car. And, you know, I never quite thought about it like that, but I definitely think that is a major component of it, especially before the advent of the iPod. So much of our time was just listening to what was on, and there was so much on all the time. Yeah, the radio stations, and then also outside of the radio, it was also just the house that I grew up in. Everyone just had such different musical opinions and thoughts and preferences, too. My mom refused to listen to anything but Brahms and my dad refused to listen to anything but John Coltrane <laughs> and they always met in the middle on something like the Beatles and I don't think that's unique to my family that's a major component of a lot of musical culture but especially in Los Angeles where plurality is everything and you have to wear a million hats in those kinds of industries yeah let's get to the program we've already talked a little bit about Stephen Banks being a Northwestern alum and a little bit your senior there and how you got to know him there and his piece, Come As You Are, is actually in four movements. This is the one piece on the album for tenor saxophone and piano, of course. He wrote that it was an effort to honor both his family and the church. So each movement is dedicated to a different family member and takes inspiration from their favorite Negro spiritual or sacred song. So the movements have titles, Lift My Eyes, Times of the Storm, Strength of My Life, and Lift My Hands. But then they also have the pieces, the themes that are in those movements, which are, I believe, this order. I still have joy, his eye on the sparrow, my Lord, what a morning, and wade in the water. By the way, those movement titles come from another song, Total Praise. He also cites composers like Schumann, Rachmaninoff, and Shostakovich, in that the whole four movements is essentially in a sonata design. So how do you filter all that in uh, as you're thinking about how to perform these pieces? So Stephen grew up playing tenor saxophone in the church with his family. His grandfather, I believe, was a pastor at an African-American Methodist church. When performing this work and, and listening to this work, I think it's really important to go back to these spirituals and to hear them and listen to them. And while the saxophone obviously doesn't have lyrics and we can't communicate words, the lyrics to each one of these spirituals has a pretty intense significance to the composition, both from a composition perspective, but also from a performing perspective. A lot of the emotional intent behind it, you can actually trace 
with the lyrical content, sometimes just straight ripping the actual hymn itself. I believe at the end of the first movement, the tenor saxophone is completely unaccompanied and plays the spiritual. And Stephen does a really great job for the performers writing in the lyrics for them, and it can drastically change how you're thinking about it. When it comes to the spiritual songs, he talks a lot about how the text of these songs were often biblical in nature. And while there is a biblical angle to it, often a large part of these spirituals also has a deep personal connection. And so there's this duality between all of these lyrics. So when you pair all of that together and you have to think about this duality of the biblical meaning, the personal meaning that it has on black culture in America, one also from not being a black American, I was also trying to look at that through its own lens. And then you add the extra layer of the classical homages all spattered throughout it. Inherently, performing the piece, you have to deal with and confront this idea of duality and this idea of plurality. And if you don't know these different cultures, you have to go in and figure it out and learn about these things. And it helped me really appreciate the music even more. And as a performer, informing myself of what the authentic way of interpreting this music is. I think that's why I was so drawn to it. It forces a conversation inherently, even from a performer standpoint. It forces you to really confront all these things that were some new to me, some not. That's why it, it's so entrancing for me. So as I mentioned, it's the only piece on the album that's for tenor sax. What are the particular challenges and advantages of that instrument and how are they felt in the piece? The piece itself was written on the tenor saxophone because of Stephen's upbringing playing tenor saxophone in the church. Also because the tenor saxophone as an instrument in the classical canon is not nearly as written for as the alto saxophone or the soprano saxophone. The variety of repertoire is much more limited. Often the people that play tenor saxophone are specialists in their own right when people think also tenor saxophone, there's so much of a connotation with jazz music. Some of the greatest jazz artists that played the saxophone played the tenor saxophone. You can list off 50 saxophonists that sound is so associated with it. And classical tenor saxophonists, I'd be strained to come up with 10. And sorry for all the classical tenor saxophonists out there. It's such a beautiful, gorgeous sound. It's a temperamental instrument, period, as all saxophones are. But it creates this really sweet, gorgeous, pure sound that is so divergent from what we picture President Clinton playing the tenor saxophone on SNL or something like that, or Careless Whisper. But there's such a different side of the instrument. Why this piece specifically, because it has homages to jazz, it is this straddling the line of tipping the hat to the traditions that existed before that made the instrument as popular as it is, but also being able to strip that out and showcasing that it can be this beautiful, delicate, impassioned voice that is completely separate from those traditions as well. When I was studying jazz and popular music so much, that was like my voice. That was the voice that spoke to me. I grew up listening to great jazz tenor saxophone players, great pop tenor saxophone players. All throughout my college studies, I separated the world. Jazz was tenor and everything else was classical. And especially these days, I have to find myself, where is my identity within this other genre on this instrument that I have so tucked away in its own corner? And I think that's one of the reasons why I really liked 
playing this piece. We talk all about these different larger concepts of identity within Stephen's piece. But for me, it was also, okay, Julian, what is your voice on this instrument? I did feel like I had to discover something a little new on this one that I had originally tapered off to other instruments that I play. So let's zero in on the first moment, which is titled, again, these titles come from the lyrics of Total Praise. The title is Lift My Eyes, but the spiritual that it quotes is My Lord, What a Morning. It opens with a fairly obvious and specific homage to the Rachmaninoff cello sonata of all things. In fact, you don't get to the theme till about 100 seconds into the piece, which I find very interesting. So I thought it'd be fun to listen to that unusual introduction and actually get into the theme. What would you like to say about this before people hear it? It's, I wouldn't say tongue-in-cheek, but Stephen loves Rachmaninoff, specifically that cello sonata, because he has a really wonderful transcription of it, and clearly it's a major part of his musical influence. For the spiritual itself, My Lord, What a Morning, there's actually doublespeak to this one as well, because there's My Lord, What a Morning, as in day, night, morning, but when I was talking with Stephen about it, there's also My Lord, What a Morning, as in grief. Already we're starting to engage on this idea of joy versus sorrow. And especially when you hear this theme throughout the entire movement, there are this light and dark perspectives to it. I think that's all. In fact, the part we're going to hear goes to this very soaring, joyful, and then immediately the mood shifts to, and I think he actually writes despondent in the score. This is actually the longest of the four moments. So we'll hear about the first half of Lift My Eyes, the first moment of Come As You Are by Stephen Banks performed by Julian Velasco on tenor saxophone and Winston Choi on piano from their new Sadie album, As We Are.
You just heard an excerpt of Lift My Eyes, the first movement of Stephen Banks' piece for tenor saxophone and piano titled Come As You Are from the album As We Are by Julian Velasco, saxophone, tenor saxophone in this case, and Winston Choi, piano on that track. It is the opening track and the opening piece on this album, and this is the world premiere recording of Stephen Banks' Come As You Are. Julian, when it got to the point of sequencing this album, you felt very strongly about opening with this piece. Can you say why? Yeah. So much of the entire album is birthed from the moment that I experienced this track. Before the competition, it was six months out, and I had no intention of performing this, obviously, because it hadn't been premiered by then. But when I heard it, there was no other option. And I knew I had to perform it. I knew I had to experience getting to play it and starting this record even in this more reflective introspective way I just felt like it set the tone for so much of the conversation that's had both I had with myself but also it ties together I believe all of the intent behind the rest of the record. Well, the next piece is quite a contrast. It's by David Maslanka. He's actually the only composer who is not currently still living. He passed away about five years ago, and it's one of his six tone studies. It's number five. Wie bist du Zelle? Soul, how have you become so unhappy? And as you can imagine from that title, it is not exactly an uplifting piece. It does not have those soaring melodies that you just heard in the first of Stephen Banks's pieces, and in fact, all of his movements have those soaring melodies. So this is very much a contrast. Before we get to the piece, what was your relationship with David? How did you get to know him and how did you get to know these pieces? David was a powerful influence in my life and a very big mentor throughout my time at Michigan State. David studied at Michigan State way back. He got his doctorate at Michigan State, I want to say the 80s. Sorry if anyone fact checks me on that one. So David, he was a wonderful writer for winds. Specifically, his wind ensemble works and his saxophone works took the community by storm. Like end of high school, I remember in my high school honor band playing piece by David's and his world kind of continuously intersecting. And he often came back to Michigan State to coach the wind ensembles and often coach the saxophone quartets. In my undergrad, I was playing a lot of David's music and he came out and I got to meet him and work with him on an hour-long saxophone quartet. And I remember him coaching us and standing in a massive room and us performing for him for an hour while he stood and stared out a window. <laughs> he was a very zen-like person, very in tune with nature and life and uh, mindfulness. After I got to play for him in my undergrad, I asked him if I could study with him. I wanted to perform more of his works for him because the interaction we had it just resonated with me in, in a way that I hadn't experienced before, and I was clearly looking for something. It was a time in my life where I needed answers, and I didn't quite know where to look. And for a large part of that, David answered that, and he was so generous. He and his wife, Allison, welcomed me into their home. I spent a week out in Missoula, Montana, in his house where he had a farm with some lovely dogs and cats and horses. And I learned a bunch of his music and played it for him in his study, but also the whole day was we would meditate, we would go on walks, we would talk about life, and he just shared so much with me. I was a junior in undergrad. I was still so young, and for him to just 
open his life to me. It meant the world. I think about that time with him very fondly, and his wife passed quite suddenly due to cancer, and him only a couple weeks after, from what I believe is most likely grief. He did have a run with cancer himself, but I talked with him just just a little bit before he passed, and he still was so giving and warm and supportive of my musical journey and believing in what I did. So obviously when this record came out, it would feel incomplete without having some kind of homage to him, his impact on me, and that's how David intersected into my life and why it was so important to include something like this. You know, it is very somber, but it's also a celebration of all these people in your life that maybe aren't still with us, but have had such a profound impact on us. In the notes, you quote David as commenting that each of these studies, these tone studies, is what he calls a short story without words, and that the melodies actually come from four-part chorales by Bach, and the key, he says, for both pianist and saxophonist is patience, because it's all a very slow tempo, it's all very quiet dynamic. In fact, there's even a marking in the score where the pianist is playing just the same chord over and over and over, and he actually writes in the score patiently. <laughs> so what's that like for you as a performer? First of all, one of David's compositional processes was every morning he'd wake up and he'd play Bach chorales. He would get up and he would play it and he would sing one of the lines while accompanying himself on the other hands. And he would do the entire chorale, but he would switch which voice he sang through the whole thing. So he'd have sung each one of the parts as a way of getting to experience each one of those lines. And Bach was such a seminal musical influence on him. You hear it in all of his works. And... Specifically, this idea of patience was something he taught to me when I was out there, was this idea that every note, every sound that we create can be its own universe that we can experience in it. We just have to be patient enough to give it the time, to be mindful enough to allow ourselves to experience it without casting judgment. When this piece is getting played, I often think about this idea of the moment of sound that you are experiencing and hearing to honestly just take a deep breath and to slow down our body to experience it for what it is and sometimes it can be nothing but beauty maybe if you asked me this question six months from now two years ago five years in the future I would have a different answer but at this moment was an homage to that patience that mindfulness that he showed me and that I think comes across in this recording and is designed to showcase how beautiful, tender, and delicate the instrument really has the capability for, which I don't feel like it often gets that opportunity to. In this case, the instrument we're talking about is the alto saxophone, which to the extent that any saxophone is associated with classical music, I think it's fair to say it would be the alto especially. But beyond that, I remember as the producer, both of the album producer and the producer specifically of the sessions for the works of the piano, you had a very specific concept or idea for how you wanted to sound in this piece that I think was a little different from everything else on the album. Can you describe that? Yeah. The things that I really love about the saxophone as an instrument is that it straddles the line between almost all of the conventional wind instruments that maybe we're more familiar with. We have so much of the flute quality, but on this one specifically, 
I hear the clarinet. Something about the great clarinet artists being able to go from the purest of sound to absolute silence and that core and that delicacy and that purity of tone is really maybe one of the largest priorities for me. In the saxophone, as you heard in Stephen's piece and as you hear in all the rest of the pieces, there's so much potential to be bombastic and to be very virtuosic and very intense. But one of my favorite things to do on the instrument is to just hold a room with a single note and to just force the listener to just fixate on this one little point and to watch it evolve from absolute silence to just the slightest sound. And I think that's something that clarinets can do really well, but the saxophone can also do really well. And specifically, I love doing it on this piece. Well, let's hear that. Then. In fact, it really does come out of silence, and we're going to hear about the first half of this. So this is excerpt from Tone Study Number 5, The Beast du Zelle, So Why Are You So Unhappy, by David Maslanka, as performed once again by Julian Velasco, this time on alto sax with Winston Joy Piano.
You just heard an excerpt of Tone Study Number no. 5, Vibis Duzela, by David Maslanka, the second piece on Julian Velasco's debut album on Sadie Records, As We Are. He's on alto sax on that one, along with Winston Choi Piano. And by the way, if you like what you're hearing, and I sure hope you do, you can check out this album many ways. Of course, you can get it as a physical CD off our website, sadierecords.org, C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org or off Amazon.com or Archive Music. You can stream it on Spotify, Apple Music, Tidal, wherever you like to stream. It'll be on the high-definition sites as well. It was originally recorded in 96 kilohertz sampling, so if you like those really high-definition sites, we're available there. Of course, you can buy it as a download. In any case, however you enjoy your music, I hope you want to check out this album. And we're now going to move on to very different piece. This is the longest single movement on the album by a composer named John Anthony Lennon. For obvious reasons, he needs to use his middle name. <laughs> the piece is titled Differences Within Me. It's again for alto saxophone and piano. Up till now, we've been hearing pieces that are either short or a collection of short to medium length movements. So how is playing an extended piece like this different? Yes, Distances Within Me is written as this rhapsodic, never-ending, drawn-out story. John is actually maybe the only composer on the record that I don't know personally. And John had such a massive influence on my musical upbringing. This piece was written for one of my grand teachers, and it was written during his time at the University of Michigan for a saxophonist by the name of James Forger, who is now the dean at Michigan State's College of Music uh, and taught my then-teacher, Joseph Luloff. And the whole piece is originally designed to actually have no measures. It was written as just one continuous line that had these moments of impact, and it was loosely shaped so that it would align, but there used to not be any measures, not be any like thing other than just general rhythms and shapes. As a concept, this is really divergent from most of the other music on the record, which is metered, you can feel pulse, you can feel time. And there are moments where you hear a song and you'll hear a dance within it, but it is designed to be this flowing, lyrical, angular, intense, really sweet, impassioned. It encompasses so many different avenues. Specifically, distances within me, it actually is a little homage to the emotional distances within oneself. It's not included in this booklet's program notes, but he has mentioned in the past this idea of the range of emotions that we experience sometimes on a daily basis and the different emotional capacities that we all hold on to that I think he's trying to elicit through this really intense piano and saxophone and watching this conversation unfold itself. So in his note, he cites some rather diverse influences, including Albin Berg's opera Wozzeck, and Chick Corea's group Return to Forever. How are these uh, felt in the music? Yeah, what a wild combination of influences, <laughs> right? John could maybe speak to this the best, but we think of Berg and we think of all those early 1900s composers who are starting to grasp with the idea of what tonality even means anymore. You're coming out of the post-romantic era and we're trying to understand tone rows are starting to hit like atonality or rather pantonality is starting to become more the four and hear a lot of that. In this music there are really melodic really tonal sections within it but there's also all these not atonal but less tonal is what I'll go with. 
it jumps between all these different sounds and the melodies they are melodic in nature and the intervallic quality does pay homage to maybe some late romanticism but it also hints at this idea of what these people were doing like in Wozzeck this idea of maximalism this extreme emotional content they ask the saxophonists to go from the lowest notes to some of the highest notes and to have the piano just smashing down to the bottom of the keyboard and getting wrapped up in this really intense emotional impact and then on the flip side, Return to Forever, you think of Chick Corea, you think super groovy, you think this little dance to it, and there are so many of these little elements of dance to it. There's a couple different melodies that have such a playful quality. John, you, you can write to me or give me a call if I'm off base on this one. When I think of Return to Forever and I think of, of that genre, there is a hyper-virtuosic element to it, but it's also danceable. It's supposed to have this kind of bounce to it. And there are moments throughout the whole piece that you go through this really intense rhapsodic passage that's maybe a little bit more atonal, and then you get into this bounce and this groove and this dance between the piano and the saxophone that's a lot more time-based, and you can hear the groove weave through as well. Well, let's hear some of that then. Let's hear the first couple minutes of this piece. Is there anything you want to say about how it opens before we hear it? The opening gesture, ba-da-da-da is the call to action throughout the whole piece. You're gonna hear it scattered throughout, augmented, moved around, starts with the piano and then it moves to the saxophone. And this gesture to me speaks as a question and it implores you to explore. And I feel like every time I hear that melody, it goes somewhere new. For me, it's that question you ask yourself. You're feeling a lot of emotions and you're exploring your own psyche you ask yourself the question and then you let it go. And so when I hear this opening, I think of it as almost a conversation with the piano and the saxophone, but also a conversation within oneself. Well, let's hear that then. So here is the opening a couple minutes of John Anthony Lennon's Distances Within Me, Julian Velasco, alto saxophone, Winston Choi, piano. Thank you. 
You just heard the beginning of a piece titled Distances Within Me by John Anthony Lennon, a piece written in 1978 and performed there by Julian Velasco on alto saxophone with Winston Choi Piano from their new album, As We Are, August 2022 release on CD Records. First two-thirds of this album is pieces with piano, and then we'll get into a couple pieces with electronics. The last piece with piano, we now switch to soprano saxophone, and it's Amanda Harburg's Court Dances. Can you talk about your relationship with Amanda and with this piece? Because this piece, of course, is a transcription. It was originally a flute piece, flute and piano, and you and she worked together to make it a soprano saxophone piece. That's right. I had the pleasure of meeting Amanda as a result of the Van Doren Emerging Artist Competition, I believe way back in 2018. She was a composer that wrote this beautiful clarinet sonata for my friend Ryan Tower, who's, I believe, the second clarinetist of the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra now. I really loved that piece that she wrote for Ryan, the clarinet piece, but then also she was a person that I got to spend the whole weekend with and some time and just conversations and food. She just radiated this warmth and this kindness, and I really appreciated getting to know her and thought that her music and her as a person was just such a wonderful combination. And it was near the end of my master's where I was asking myself, What's some music that really speaks to me? I was actually starting to confront, like, actually, I think it was this competition where I was like, okay, I need to think of some things. And I remember, man, I really loved Amanda's writing, and I loved working with her. She writes a lot of really wonderful flute music. She wrote a wonderful piccolo concerto that was premiered by the, I believe, the Philadelphia Orchestra only a couple years ago. Anyway, I stumbled onto this piece. As a result, I hadn't talked to her in a year or so, and it was just instantly captivating. It was only written, I think, 2016 I loved how much it danced. I thought that it had so many interesting tongue-in-cheek moments. Maybe not tongue-in-cheek, but all these homages to jazz harmony. You know, she's a Juilliard graduate, and a lot of that Juilliard school has this element of bringing some of that jazz vocabulary back into a more traditional romantic sense, uh, at least uh, within a very specific graduating class. And it was one of those pieces I listened to on YouTube. I was like, wow, this is really exciting. This is really fun. And as most saxophonists do they get to meet a wonderful composer and then the composer says i've never written a piece for saxophone (laughs) and one of those things where i I listened to it and i was like i could do that i think that that would be really fun i remember i was actually standing on the davis purple line stop facebook messaging her one summer afternoon and hey i would really love to get to play this piece and i sent that thinking that she'd be very kind, but like, no, but she was all for it. She was like, absolutely, I would be honored and I would love to do that. And so it started a conversation where she just sent over the score and I just tried to play it. And I was just experimenting around with it as much as possible, trying to see what worked. And it started a conversation that ended up leading to court dances as we know it. Now, soprano sax is the instrument you play in the quartet noise. So does this feel somewhat proprietary? It's like your instrument now? And if so, how is it different to play from the lower instruments with the larger bells and all? Soprano saxophone, I consider to be maybe my primary voice these days, especially through my time in noise as the soprano saxophonist, obviously. But long before I ever joined noise, actually my first saxophone that I ever got was the saxophone that I play on this record. I think it was like a combination Christmas plus birthday gift that my family bought me. And... There's just something that I've always played soprano saxophone. It's a voice that really speaks to me. I think it's so beautiful and I really resonate with the sound of it. And 
Many people, when they play the saxophone, drift towards either highs or lows in terms of the different voice types, like soprano, alto, and then tenor, baritone. And I definitely drifted towards the highs. There's a quality to it that just constantly draws me back. And it's very challenging. It's very temperamental. The soprano saxophone, often they equate it to an easier to play oboe. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> I've heard the whole gambit. It's one of those instruments that of shadows a bunch of different of the classic orchestral winds, but it has the capability of doing so many different things that make it what it is and make it so unique. So I think it can capture that beautiful pure tone of clarinet or the versatility and the agility of the flute and also can get some of the more piercing qualities of the oboe. So it is this mix that you choose what you elicit and what you bring out which offers a wide palette of musical vocabulary that we can tap into. thing you'll learn throughout the rest of this podcast is that I listen to flute music and I go, I can do that on soprano <laughs> saxophone. <laughs> and yeah, it was a really interesting process to create the transcription itself. When we were first discussing doing this, it was for this competition that was supposed to happen in May 2020. And we're talking about the Sadie Emerging Artist Competition. Yes. I was way behind schedule because clearly it was February of 2020 and I hadn't really gotten started. But when everything got pushed back and everything locked down, what a better opportunity to get started. You know, in the same way I had that silly video that I made, this was maybe my only musical outlet for the first couple months was I would sit in my room, this small little apartment up in Evanston, and with hardwood floors, it sounded terrible. My neighbors hated me. And I would just play into my little home microphone and I would record myself playing the piece and little excerpts from it, and I would just send it to her. I remember uh, I would get the finale file and I'd import it and I'd have like a MIDI piano play behind me because obviously there was no pianist that was gonna learn it with me at the time. And I would just play along with the worst sounding piano in the history of mankind and send it back to her. And we had this lovely back and forth. One of the only things I was doing musically at the time we did that seven or eight times, shooting each other emails, keeping in touch, sharing, getting some feedback. And you know, eventually it kind of came to a point where we're like, yeah, this, this really works. And it's now court dances uh, as you see today. And I couldn't be happier with the process working with Amanda. I think the piece itself is so wonderful and I'm really excited to add it to the saxophone repertoire and to share this recording on this record. And how does the feel of the piece change when played on sax instead of flute? Winston and I actually chatted about this a little bit too. Now, obviously, the saxophone being a conical bore and the flute being a cylindrical bore drastically changes the acoustical properties. We play basically the same range in the conventional sense, but so much of the timbral qualities become very divergent as you go into the different extremes of the ranges. So where the flute, when you play in the low register, is quite delicate and quite relaxed, the saxophone has the capability of playing very, very loud and bombastic, almost to a fault sometimes. So we have to work on reining that in. And so as the piece has evolved, that compared to the flute version, the flute has so much more bounce and it has this like darty quality. And the saxophone has that, but there's this angle of intensity and this power that exhibits throughout it. And also so much of the vocabulary is originating from more jazz music or more contemporary music. It's cool to hear some of that vocabulary translated on the saxophone in a classical context for me, it kind of connects a little bit more dots than sometimes when I hear the flute. But I find it to be really captivating, and especially that second movement. Honestly, all of the movements. There's just something different. And I implore anyone that enjoys 
court dances to definitely check out the flute version and compare and contrast and shoot me an email if, if you have thoughts i'd be more than happy to chat about it well, it's interesting you mentioned the lower range which i think is particularly exploited in the middle movement the slow movement air de cour i'm actually a little surprised you know you think of the soprano saxophone as this high instrument but it's such a warm sound in that lower register at least as you play it <laughs> i work very very hard to make that happen but thank you when people think of high instruments, they think of high playing, but there is this warmth and this depth of color that exists in that lower range of the soprano saxophone that is just heart-wrenchingly beautiful in the right context. Yeah, and I think this certainly is the right context. Interestingly, in her note, Amanda comments that the piece was initially inspired by, and she puts it, the fast syncopated bounce of a squash ball, and I think that's particularly felt in the faster outer movements, which interestingly, are currently titled after French dances Courante and Tambourin, but actually the original titles were Topspin and Match Point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Did that influence your playing? Uh, it definitely makes it really confusing when I talk about the piece. <laughs> My original part, all in the old titles, especially when we went into the versions and the titles that we know now, we're definitely trying to make more and more of this homage to the concept of the Renaissance court dance. But there is this natural match point that has a much more playful quality to it. At its core, I think it is supposed to be happy, uplifting, fun, vibrant music. Sometimes it's easy to get lost in fancy titles and names and that, bringing it back to its roots. The first and third movements should be toe tappers that you're dancing and you're bouncing around to. And the second movement is this gorgeous song that you get to sing through that playful, light, just warm and inviting quality as Amanda as a person, but also as a composer through this entire piece. Oh, that's really nice. Well, let's hear some of that last moment, which now is titled Tambourin, and that references both the provincial French dance, provincial as in Provençal, and the name of the French drum, the tambourin, and both the dance and the drum-like percussive quality are felt in this piece. So let's hear about the first half of this third movement. And again, we hear Julian Velasco now on soprano saxophone with Winston Choi piano, an excerpt of the third movement of Court Dances by Amanda Harburg. Thank you. 
That was the first half of a movement titled Tambourin, which is a name of French dance and a French drum, and I think you can feel that in the piece. It's from the third movement of a piece titled Court Dances, and of course, that is a court dance, by Amanda Harburg, originally written for flute and piano, but transcribed for soprano saxophone and piano, and this is the world premiere recording of the soprano saxophone version of Amanda Harburg's Court Dances. Performed there by saxophonist Julian Velasco with pianist Winston Choi on Julian's new album for Sadie Records, As We Are, our August 2022 release on Sadie Records. And you can find that album on our website, sadierecords.org. That's C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org. Anywhere you like to buy your music, whether it's physically from Amazon.com or Archive Music or to stream on any streaming site you can find out there or even get it as a download on iTunes. It's available everywhere and I hope you want to check it out. The last couple pieces on the album are with electronics. So before we get to those, let's talk a little bit about your collaborator on the four pieces we've just heard from, pianist Winston Choi, who I like to describe as Chicago's collaborative pianist extraordinaire. He's played with just about everybody. In fact, he heads the piano department at the Chicago College of Performing Arts at Roosevelt University. He's also the pianist of the Civitas Ensemble, which has made a couple of recordings on CD, including you can hear him play a whiz-bang performance of a Liszt Hungarian Rhapsody on, on one of those albums. You might want to check that out. What was it like for you working with Winston? Winston was such a treat. What an incredibly kind human being, so easy to work with, and just such a powerhouse on the instrument. It was such a pleasure to get to work with him on this, and he's so easy to communicate and work with, and it was just so fun to bring all this music to him. When we approached Winston about doing this record, he was just all game for it. And from a saxophonist perspective, you don't always get that kind of positive reception on learning our music. We often ask for some pretty intense and pretty challenging things, and for him to just step into it and just learn all of this really intense music. You ask yourself when working with someone, can they do all the different things that I really want to come out? And Winston is that and everything more. It was so wonderful to get a chance to hear his interpretations of these pieces and to watch over rehearsals and watching him put his own spin. A lot of this repertoire I had already known and worked with other pianists on, and he forced me to rethink some things in a really good way, and I found so many of the interpretations after listening to this record back are just so different than maybe they were even a couple months ago, and I am really grateful for his musical leadership and his own spin and his own insight and just his wonderful piano playing that I feel like ties this whole half of the record together. Well, anyone who's worked with Winston will tell you that uh, there, technically there's absolutely nothing he can't do. He's really uh, amazing. I should note that I was the producer for these sessions. One of the wonderful things about you getting your doctorate at Northwestern University is we got to use Galvin Recital Hall, which is just acoustically a spectacularly wonderful chamber music hall right there literally on the lake at Northwestern with a gorgeous view of downtown Chicago. If if you ever have a chance to go to a concert there, don't pass it up. It was great to be able to work with you in that wonderful acoustic, and they also have a really nice Steinway to work with for Winston. And of course, I got to work with the regular Sadie Records multi-Grammy winning engineer Bill Malone on those sessions. What was it like for you working with him? I love Bill. He is such a breeze to work with. 
I've done recording sessions before, but definitely not a solo project. I definitely came in a little nervous, a little, you know, this is it. Like, I, I hope I don't mess it up. And luckily, between you and Winston and Bill especially, I felt so at home, so comfortable, and knowing that I had such an incredible team. And Bill was just so easy and has such an ear for these kinds of things. I wasn't worried for a second that entire session, the second I got in there. I was this is a walk in the park in many ways. And one quick thank you to Jerry Teets for making Galvin Recital Hall happen. You know, we recorded in March right before spring break. That man found a way to fit two full days of recording in the schedule for us. Jerry, if you ever listen to this, thank you so much. Thanks for me too, Jerry, and we really appreciate it. So moving on to the electronic works. Now, and the next one is by a composer where, and you said to me, I've got to do something by Elijah Daniel Smith because I have such a close relationship with him. Before we get to his piece, can you just talk about that? Yeah, Elijah is a Chicago native, grew up here, and his family still lives out here. I had the pleasure of meeting Elijah actually right before the lockdown. I think it was February 2020. His partner is really good friends with a, a colleague of mine at Northwestern, and he came to a performance of a saxophone quartet performance that I was giving for the Northwestern New Music Institute. I got to meet him and he was just so into what we were doing and just, he had never written for saxophone. He's like, I love this, I love what you guys do. He was one of the first big commissions that I had the opportunity of having. He wrote this wonderful saxophone quartet called Perihelion that I've had the pleasure of getting to tour now for about a year, year and a half. I have recently commissioned him for a new solo alto saxophone and electronics piece. And then the soprano saxophone and electronics piece that you're gonna hear in this record, Animus, was the collaboration between one of my closest friends and him. And he's a PhD student at Princeton currently, went to Boston for his undergrad, and just such a down-to-earth, honest, wonderful, warm and inviting human being that I really appreciated and still appreciate all of his perspectives on life and his perspectives on music. He challenges me musically and also personally and in the most positive ways possible. He's just a composer that I really resonated with. And the start of the pandemic, basically, till now, that has been a collaboration over multiple pieces, over multiple projects. And he has just been such a delight to work with. And I love having his music come to life and watching his successes come in. He was just commissioned by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra just this past year. He is going to be one of these great new composers, and it's just a pleasure to be with him as he discovers his own voice, too. And I should note that Smith actually has the distinction of being the youngest composer on the album. In fact, he and Banks are still both in their 20s. It's mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> a lot of young blood in this That's record. That's pretty remarkable. Now, I know we list this piece as the world premiere recording of version for soprano saxophone, so that implies there is another version of this piece. That's right. Right. So Animus was actually written quite a few years ago. It's maybe one of the older pieces on the record, which we say older as in like less than five years. This was written long before he went to Princeton and it was originally written for flute. It's really interesting as we were having a conversation about this upcoming alto saxophone electronics piece called Meridians that uh, I premiered at Princeton this past March. I actually referenced Animus and his recording of the flute player performing that. And I was like, I really love the sound world that you're getting out. My friend Joe Connor actually commissioned him to create the saxophone edition of it. And I heard Joe's performance of it from one of his doctoral recitals at Northwestern. We were colleagues. And Elijah was like, man, the saxophone version of this might even be better than the flute version. And it's like, that's exactly what you want to hear. (laughs) And this piece is all about 
creating these hazy veneers, these dense textures, and it's all built from recordings of the saxophone itself. So the orchestra that you hear behind, and I do orchestra in big air quotes so that you can't see because this is a podcast, the orchestra behind us is all different samplings and processing of the saxophone as well. So it creates this very intense, I almost describe it as dystopian. It's a very bleak, emotional landscape that he creates through this. And it's one of my favorite aspects of his writing. And I think it comes across really well in this version. Well, he has a very short program note for this piece in the album booklet. One thing he does talk about is the soloist being in, quote, conversation with themselves in their own recordings. Uh, So how do you converse with yourself? Yeah, it's really interesting. Performing this, I almost think like a solo Debussy piece or something like that, where it's these lines that are sinuous and angular and there's different layers. It almost feels like there are two voices happening at the same time. And you'll hear this, especially through the middle parts of Animus, where it's completely just the saxophone alone. There's a call and a response, and it's always in dialogue with itself, but also with itself as in like the orchestra, because that is also me, is designed to break apart this sense of identity. That program note being nice and short, honestly, Elijah probably would have written three words if he could get away with it. (laughs) He's very curt about uh, the way he describes his music. He likes to offer the listener to kind of come to their own conclusions, which I can respect. And I think this piece offers a very specific type of texture, but there's many, many different ways of interpreting the musical language within it. Well, the one descriptive term he does use in this very short note is is a hazy veneer. And I note that right at the beginning, his use of microtones, do you see that as part of this hazy veneer that he mentions? Absolutely. Microtones, and for all the not classical music aficionados that aren't super into experimental music, is like the microtones are the notes in between the notes. You know, this is present in a lot of non-Western music. You're in a lot of like traditional Indian music and a lot of traditional Arabic music that go beyond the notes that we know on the piano. And it's jarring when you hear those kinds of intervals stacked up against each other. That was the intention, is this idea of music and notes that you hear and you recognize, but it's not quite right. And there's something about that rub and that dissonance that he explores a lot in his music. And he revised this piece for this recording only back in March. And the first thing he added was all these new microtonal aspects. His first saxophone quartet was an exploration into microtonality, this idea of creating drones and then having the microtones rub against each other. And it creates a really interesting sonic landscape. Now, when you hear an interval, especially in live performance, you can feel the waves rubbing against each other. And you hear this a lot like Stockhausen's music, but you hear these resultant tones, like a third voice that's the result of these two intersecting notes. And in microtones, it goes to a whole new level and it can create all these interesting new rubs. When you listen to this opening, the band or the orchestra, as we describe right now, comes in and it's wrong? Question mark. It's there, but it's unsettling does give exactly what he described, this haze to it. It's almost like drifting through fog. It's just a really interesting sound texture. I would describe it as otherworldly, but it's not, at least in my ear, it's not off-putting. It immediately establishes its own, as you put it, sound world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely a tone, especially if you're listening to the record all the way through and sitting in the car, as I have done many times at this point. You come through and you listen to the end of the Harburg and this big old flourish, and then we switch these textures. And I think, honestly, the microtonality does a really great job of helping you realize that you're somewhere new. Well, let's hear that then. We'll hear about the first quarter of the piece. This is from Animus, 
world premiere of version for soprano saxophone and electronics performed in all cases by Julian Velasco on soprano saxophone. You just heard the first part of a piece by Elijah Daniel Smith, Animus, in its world premiere recording for soprano saxophone and electronics, the electronics being more tracks of that saxophone, as performed by Julian Velasco on his featured debut album on Sadie Records, As We Are. And we come now to the last work, this by Christopher Cerrone, and uh, like the last two pieces, it is also a transcription from a piece originally written for flute, in this case flute and electronics, now written for soprano saxophone and electronics, and this piece is titled Liminal Highway. So once again, I'll ask you to talk about how you got to know Christopher and how this soprano saxophone version came about and how it differs from the original flute version. I had the pleasure of meeting Chris last year, only, I think it was like 11 months ago. It wasn't even a full year ago. I met him when he was out at Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art. I was there throughout the month of July of 2021 as a Bang on a Can Summer Music Festival fellow, where I was performing a lot with Bang on a Can All-Stars and a bunch of my contemporary fellows. And he just happened to be passing through. I think he had a piece being played at Tanglewood and they're like right down the road. So we stopped by and we just met over a beer and a large crowd. I had known of Chris's music from the pandemic. It was one of those deep into YouTube. I stumbled onto something and I really enjoyed his music and started a conversation with him when I was out at Bang on a Can's Summer Festival. And we both talked about Liminal Highway 
and I really love this piece, and I think it would work really well on saxophone. I said very daftly with no plan in mind, the classic, as you're realizing, Julian, here's a flute piece, and he goes, that's going to be better on saxophone. And clearly it's working, at least to some degree. And to, again, my surprise, he was like, yeah, I've been meaning for that to happen. We should make that happen. And I was like, oh my God, like that'd be insane. And fast forwards to when we were just talking about this record, and uh, I realized for me, this piece was a happy place in the early pandemic. It was written for this great flautist, Timothy Monroe, Chicago-based, and I believe is actually moving to Australia soon to start teaching at his former alma mater. Timothy Monroe, who's part of the Grossman Ensemble, an amazing freelance artist, and this was written for him by the Miller Theater. With Chris, it was dedicated to him. He was such a visionary, and I actually got to meet him in a masterclass just a couple months before the lockdown. I played a CPE Bach transcription for him, and he was talking about articulation and Baroque styles and also being able to play this piece, like something like Liminal Highway. He had such a wide range of knowledge and expertise, and I was just so inspired by his musicianship and his intelligence and his thoughtfulness that I found this video of him performing it made by 410 Media out in Philadelphia. And it's this unbelievably gorgeous video. I remember watching it sitting in my room on one of the days of the lockdown, and I was just completely floored by how incredible of a performance he was giving, but also of like the visual aspect of it. It was very inspiring, and it's a little nerdy of a thing to admit on this podcast, but I remember vividly writing on a notepad saying, who is Christopher Cerrone? question mark and putting the note on my computer it was just like such an, a seminal impact point for me so it's really exciting and I can't thank Sadie enough for helping this vision come to life because this has been a pipe dream for years now that I could not be more excited to share this recording of I should note that Tim Monroe who the original flute version was written for and who actually has recorded that version appears on a number of Sadie albums as a former member of 8th Blackbird as well in making this soprano saxophone version, Chris in the notes uh, talks about having to come up with some creative solutions for things that maybe worked on flute and piccolo that maybe don't work quite perfectly on the soprano sax. And he notes that those solutions involved the harmonica and blowing into beer bottles. So what was that like for you? This was between myself, Chris, and Mike, uh, Mike Tierney being our recording engineer and one of the producers on this. One of the funnest aspects of it, because the opening of this piece and the closing, the first and fifth movement both start with fluttered piccolo. And as you could imagine, that's way too high for a soprano saxophone. It's an octave above. Uh, I tried playing it true to the octave above and it just never quite sounded right that delicacy that lightness that woody sound that almost reedy that the piccolo can get chris had been sitting around and i remember him mentioning just like what if it was on harmonica and having a nice little chuckle about it because i tried like a sopranino saxophone i had tried all these different options and i tried it on the pick actually i didn't try it chris did it i remember we were on a zoom call and he was just hey man i've been messing around with the harmonica and he picks up a harmonica that he got. Uh, he was working with, a, for some reason, he intersects with harmonica a little bit too much in his compositional life. I don't know. He, he'll admit that. Um, and he was just like, what do you think of this? And he like plays the opening gesture, which is just these octave A's. And we were both, wow, that kind of works. And as a result, that's how it happened. 
we realized that it, one, created a similar sound, but it was also so different. And the piece, Liminal Highway, is all about all these different processing of the instrument, but also has the harmonica and then the beer bottles kind of help bring it into this different little world of its own. And the beer bottles coming in in the fifth movement, that's actually originally in the flute version as well. And we've talked a lot about how having the harmonica at the top helps contextualize the beer bottles at the end, actually. And it adds this low octave that comes in at the end of the fifth movement that you've heard all this high saxophone, all these fluttered harmonicas, everything is just so delicate and light and airy and piercing. And then this bass drops and that's the beer bottles. And it's just such a cool moment in, in the piece to end on that note. And then from a visual aspect, performing it, you walk on stage to hear a performance of Liminal Highway. Maybe you don't know anything about it, you expect to hear a soprano saxophone and electronics. And then you walk on stage and there's five beer bottles lined up and a harmonica on the side. You already know you're in for something different. And I think that's a cool aspect of the performance of this piece as well. So those instruments are actually played live over yes. the... Now they're not part of the... No, no. Tape. In this version, you start spinning these wheels of loops and stuff like that. So when the harmonica comes in, it starts this looping process and you hear all these different versions being looped at different speeds and it, it's almost cacophonous, but it's also melodic. You can hear the loops and hear all these clear intentionality in the melody. And then when you're performing it live, yeah, the beer bottles are mounted onto a table and mic'd. It's really jarring, uh, no pun intended, end to the piece where you set down the saxophone and then you get to hear these beer bottles. I'm glad you mentioned Mike Tierney. So I should just give the full credits on this album. As I mentioned, I was privileged to produce the works with piano with wonderful Sadie engineer Bill Malone. And those were here, as we mentioned, at Galvin Recital Hall in Evanston, Illinois. You recorded the works with electronics at Shiny Thing Studio in New York. And Mike Tierney was the engineer for both of them, as well as the producer for Animus and a producer on Liminal Highway. The other producer on Liminal Highway was the composer himself, Christopher Cerrone. That's right. Chris, Mike Tierney is a wonderful human being, and I actually met him through my work playing in Noise. He's been the engineer for all of Noise's work and all of their commercial releases since their debut album with the exception being the debut album. And he is easy to work with and is so thoughtful of an engineer and a producer. It just felt like the natural thing. And he was actually the engineer that originally constructed Liminal Highway. So obviously we were deciding to put together this piece that's this monumental feat being Liminal Highway. It only made sense to have the person that did it the first time because there's no one that knows that piece maybe better than him. Honestly, he might know it better than me. And he has a really lovely dog. His name's Cassio. It's out in Bed-Stuy in his basement. And yeah, it's it was a real pleasure getting the chance to go out there and make these pieces with him and to have Chris there. Also, as we did Liminal Highway, he donated all of his time to help make this come to life. And I couldn't have done it without the two of them. And I should note that the techniques, and these I think are true of both flute and saxophone, that are employed here include actually using the key clicks as sounds themselves, uh, multiphonics, which is playing multiple notes at once, which is not something you normally do on either instrument, air sounds, uh, as well as the pre-recorded electronics, and the movements themselves, which apparently all come from a poem by John K. Sampson. The movements are titled, When You Fall Asleep in Transit, A Dream You Don't Recall, Between Consciousness and Sleep, liminal and suddenly it is missing 
Yeah, those are certainly very interesting titles. And I thought it'd be fun because it's actually the shortest movement so he could hear the whole thing. It would be fun to, for people to hear the third movement between consciousness and sleep. He notes that that movement in particular takes advantage of those multiphonics or what he calls wrong fingerings. How would you describe both the piece and the techniques used? One of the reasons why Liminal Highway is such a captivating piece is that these techniques that we're describing, Chris is so careful to capture them in a way that it becomes, as we heard in Animus, there's something that you can hear, like a saxophone being layered with another saxophone. You hear layers, right? Um, but when you start capturing like the percussive sound of a key click and then realizing that has pitch and that that can be used as a drum, or these multiphonics, like you can create harmony with multiple notes being played at the same time. And that's one of the wonderful things that ended up working out with Liminal Highway is it just happened to be that the same flute multiphonics could be replicated on the saxophone. It was a miracle. And honestly, I think that was the crux of if the piece was gonna work. <laughs> I truly hope that when you listen to Liminal Highway, you hear so much of the instrument, but you also don't. It's one of those things the textures and the layers and the sound worlds that are generated start to feel alien. And as you'll hear in this third movement, it starts with this high note and then the entire movement is actually that high note perfectly looped in half. So the piece starts with this attack and then the decay has been processed for so long it goes halfway through the entire movement and then it starts reversing. And then you'll hear as the textures start building and the saxophone gets more and more angular and more and more angsty out of this alien sound world from the multiphonics. As it's building intensity, you'll feel something rising and you don't quite know what it is. And it's actually the first attack of the piece being reversed at you. And as we go towards the end and going into the fourth movement, it feels like almost a vacuum suck. You just get swept into it and it goes And then the fourth movement starts with these key clicks and it creates this really interesting percussive effect. It's one of the reasons why I fell in love with the piece as a whole, and I think it's such a wonderfully captivating moment. Because there are no breaks between the movements, we'll actually bleed into the fourth movement a little bit with this excerpt. So here is mostly the third movement with a little bleed into the fourth, third movement titled Between Consciousness and Sleep from Christopher Cerrone's Liminal Highway, world premiere recording of version for soprano saxophone and electronics, performed once again by Julian Velasco.
You just heard the third movement, plus a little bleed into the fourth, of Christopher Cerrone's Liminal Highway, as performed on soprano saxophone with electronics by Julian Velasco from his debut album titled As We Are. It is the August 2022 release, specifically August 19, 2022, will be the official release date of this album when pre-orders will ship, for example. And if you want to pre-order it, you can do that on Amazon.com or on SadieRecords.org, for example, our website. Once uh, we hit that, what we call the street date on August 19th, you'll be able to stream it on whatever site you like to stream from or get it as a download. So however you like to get your music, I really hope you'll check it out. And now that people have heard parts of every piece, can you talk about how the recording process is different for those electronic pieces done in a studio versus the acoustical pieces done in a concert hall? Very, very different kind of process. So much of these pieces was built on textures and layers. And because all of the orchestration is different variations and different processes of my own playing, there was no way to hear what it sounded like. It was so much of trusting the process. And it was mapping out and taking what we knew to be Liminal Highway and Animus from older recordings and being like, okay, we have to go in. It's like making a massive puzzle. You have to get this little corner piece and you have to put it there and you have to put the line piece and oh, oh, there's a little yellow piece right here and capturing it. And then when we're performing acoustic music, like when we were working with Winston and we were recording those, we're listening to it and we're immediately getting that feedback and that capture and being, was that what it meant? Or was that the right moment? Or did we capture it? And it's not like that in something like this. It's a very different process where you capture everything and then you sit there in front of a computer for hours being like, no, 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 no. A fraction of a second later. No, 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 no. Just, you're trying to create that moment, but it's so much more on the back end. That's something I'm eternally grateful for Chris and Mike and just the two of them to be able to help me realize that vision and them having such a clear vision as well. Like it was all about having those discussions in front of a board, which is a very, very different way of making music. A lot more people would say that that's more akin to more popular music producing. I would probably tend to agree with them. Not that it's any less or more valid of a means of creating music, it's just different that's what makes that experience special and throughout this record you can feel like a side a side b almost as you see these two different processes unfold throughout the record and now that people have heard parts of every piece what would you want them to take from the experience of the album as a whole both its different acoustic and electronic sides what i want people to experience in this record is one that i'm trying to showcase the gambit of what I do personally, but also what the instrument is capable of. These gorgeous, delicate moments to these incredibly virtuosic and impassioned experiences to also generating some of the most curious and engaging textures and sounds. It all comes together throughout all these different instruments. More than even just exploring the instrument as a whole, it's it's so exciting to be able to release the first all saxophone record with Sadie. Like that in and of itself is something that I could not be more excited about. But coming back to this idea of as we are, this is designed to be a celebration of all the people that I've been able to intersect in my life Even in the past couple of years, all these stories come from the past five, six, seven years, no longer than a decade. And it's a celebration of all those intersection points and realizing that there are so many wonderful people in each other's lives that 
contribute so much to what we are. I hope that you get to enjoy all of the different aspects of what constitutes my musical identity. And I implore you to explore and get to see what makes up you. That's maybe the closest thing to a call to action I have from this record. And I hope it sparks conversations in the same way. Come as you are sparked a conversation I had within myself. I hope that something in this record resonates in in a similar way that gets you to tap into either yourself, your music, your art, your work, your life, anything. And I hope you enjoy and yeah, please reach out if you enjoy it. I love hearing when things go well. I've poured my blood, sweat, and tears into this record, and I couldn't be happier about it. I'd love to hear anyone's thoughts and feelings if you care to share. And I should note that Julian is the winner of Sadie's inaugural Emerging Artist Competition. And really, the thing that impressed the judges and the audience alike was that we could feel your personality. It really came through in your performance and your presentation that this was your voice and that was frankly what we were looking for well let's move on now to the last questions so uh, we're recording this podcast in mid-june but of course the album comes out in mid-august so i wanted to ask what's coming up for you in the late summer fall and beyond what are your highlights I could not be more excited to get to solo with the Chicago Sinfonietta upcoming and also to play at the Sadie Soiree. That's going to be one heck of a jam-packed weekend, and I could not be more excited to play in the gorgeous Wentz Recital Hall out in Naperville and also have the opportunity to play at Symphony Center. That's making your solo debut at Symphony Center, It is. It's a dream come true in in so many aspects, and I'm really excited to share Roberto Sierra's saxophone concerto. And... Going forward, my projects with noise are also unfolding. We have a wonderful Chicago season that we always end up doing. We do a bunch of concerts throughout the year, premiering a bunch of new works, premiering works by composers in Chicago and out. We have some residencies upcoming at universities such as Princeton. And then going forward, one, get a chance to rest. It's been a wonderful process making this record and I'm excited to share it and just get an opportunity to take a deep breath and and reflect on what's next for the solo projects. I'm really excited to share this music and perform it and perform it live, but it's starting a new conversation. It's asking where's that next thing that's going to inspire me. I'm actually really lucky to say that there are already things that are fitting that bill. But I am just excited to get the chance to play the record soon. Excellent. Finally, we always end these podcasts with a question that gets so many different perspectives on this. Appreciate yours. Question being what for you makes the Chicago music scene so special? Mm, That's such a good question. What makes Chicago's scene really special, especially for saxophone, is there is a storied tradition of classical saxophonists throughout the years. You know, at Northwestern, before my current mentor, Tamer Sullivan took over. There was Timothy McAllister, now teaches at the University of Michigan. But even before that was, of course, the absolutely incredible Frederick Hemke, who taught at the university for 50 years, such a long time. And he had such a monumental impact into the classical saxophone community and the saxophone community at large. And you'll see throughout the entire Chicagoland, people that have studied with him that have been impacted by him. And as a result, Chicago actually uniquely has this really funny concentration of saxophonists, jazz saxophonists, but also classical saxophonists, and it makes it an incredibly dense community. When I was first thinking about moving here, I think what constantly drew me in 
was that the music scene in Chicago, and again, I'm contrasting this to what I'm maybe the most comfortable with, which is like the Los Angeles music scene. Chicago and the artists that live here are so versatile in what they do. Everyone has something different to say, and we, and truly, we draw from so many different traditions. There's such deep traditions in everything that we do, like whether that be the punk DIY scene, whether that be the classical music scene, whether that be the jazz scene. There are storied traditions that create this unique amalgamation of a musical culture that we have here that is substantive and has decades, if not centuries, of a tradition. And so, what makes me the most happy about being a part of the Chicago scene and what makes it unique is that there is such an eagerness to collaborate between these different worlds. It's not unusual to go to a concert of experimental music that is followed by a jazz number that's followed by a traditional classical piece. You see these kinds of moments and you see these different artists intersect and Honestly, as getting a chance to experience that firsthand, being able to jump into all these different hats and not only to do it, but to be celebrated for doing it is something that I find to be unique within this city. That kind of celebration of that experience makes it uniquely Chicago and makes this scene so special. Wonderful. Well, this has been another Classical Chicago podcast, this time celebrating our August release with Sadie's Emerging Artist Competition winner, Julian Velasco, saxophonist. His new album being released on August 19, 2022, is titled As We Are. Thank you so much, Julian. Thank you so much for having me, Jim. And thank you so much for listening.